Well, as we've uh, mentioned a couple times uh, this morning, uh, this is the time of year when uh, people start to think very kind of forward and retroactive. We start to think about uh, the past year, the decisions uh, that we've made. We start to think about uh, the year that is ahead of us, and it's the time where we reevaluate things like habits, and uh, we hope to change certain things about us uh, in the new year. And at least in this part of the country, that often means a bump in attendance at churches. And uh, we, of course, are not uh, immune to that, at least for a few weeks, that is. Uh, and what happens is a lot of people want to get more in the habit of uh, religion and religious practices, and they want to be kind of refreshed in their own sense of morality and ethics. And uh, don't hear me wrong, I will never complain about this. Uh, But what often gets forgotten in all of this is that the faith is so much more than just an ethic, a morality, or even a belief system. Uh, It is, of course, all of those things, but the faith is so much more than just those parts. Because one of the things that we remember is that true faith is a powerful and personal encounter with a living God. It is a deeply an intimate relational experience with Jesus Christ. And so over the next couple weeks, what I want to do, at least five weeks or so, is to look at five different individuals and to see their deep and life-changing experience with Jesus Christ. And I think what we'll discover is as each one of those people encountered Jesus Christ, it changed everything about their lives. They were never to be the same person again. And I think as we look at these individuals and their stories, we're going to keep coming back to a few questions. One is probably the most apparent. Have you experienced the power of Jesus in your life? Have you experienced that personally? Have you felt him invade your life in such a way that it changes everything about you? The other questions have something to do with this. If you have experienced that at some point in your life, but you have somehow lost your way, how does the faith move away from simply being just a habit, just a morality, or just a belief system? How does a personal relationship with Jesus Christ uh, change everything about you? And if it has been lost, how do we find our way back? And so this week, what I want to do is look at John the Baptist and the story of John the Baptist. And almost all of the gospel writers uh, touch on Jesus's relationship with John the Baptist. There's some things we know. Uh, There's a lot we don't know. Uh, But our passage this morning happens towards the end of John's life. Uh, And we're going to be reading this morning from John uh, chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. This is God's word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's Word. Father, thank you for the uh, opportunity to worship here this morning. Thank you for the psalm that we read that reminds us about the uh, incredible power of your voice. And so, Father, we pray that the power of your voice would speak into our hearts this morning, that you would use your word to shape and mold us into who you desire us to be, that you would use your word to remind us of the beauties of the gospel this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Uh, If you've read the Gospels at all, you know that uh, John the Baptist is quite an enigmatic character. The the story that we read this morning uh, reminds us of that as well. Uh, He was born to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, They were both of the priestly class of the Jewish culture. And uh, his birth was foretold to his parents. And they knew that he would be the forerunner to his cousin, Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a, a really interesting story that we often read at Christmas time when uh, a pregnant uh, Elizabeth visits with a pregnant Mary, and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy when he is in the presence of Mary and Jesus. Uh, a very interesting story told in Luke chapter 1. Uh, it's believed that uh, John the Baptist took what was called uh, the Nazarite vow. Uh, When he was very young in age, some people believe he actually went out into the wilderness around five years old uh, to participate in this Nazarite vow. Uh, So he lived a very interesting life. We know about his end. He uh, experienced a very brutal uh, end, being beheaded uh, by the Jewish authorities, by uh, Herod um, and um, Herod's family. But when the Gospels open up, uh, John is living in the wilderness. Uh, He is most likely in his early 30s, probably the same uh, age as Jesus Christ. Uh, But Mark tells us this. He says that John was clothed in camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, So it is, as the Jesus Storybook Bible reminded us, he was a bit of an unusual character. And so because of all that, he's a little hard for us uh, to really understand, uh, he, but he wasn't totally out of box in that culture. Uh, in fact, in the, the ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, the office of prophet and the prophetic tradition was full of very interesting characters. And uh, John believed himself to be a prophet. 
Uh, He was believed by everyone around him to be a prophet. And so in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was full of these people, wise men, uh, seers, uh, and prophets. They were common in the ancient world, but a little tough for us to understand. Uh, There's other gospel characters that we can understand a little better. Uh, I think Matthew, the tax collector, we really understand because we look at him and we say, that's capitalism. We can understand uh, a character like that. But when you come to the prophets, they're a little more uh, enigmatic and unique. But these prophets were given a, a special message from God, and they knew that their job was to communicate that message to all the people around them, whether those people were willing to listen to that message or not. But what we discover is that John is unique amongst these prophets because he knew that he was going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was to be the last in some way of a long line of prophets because he knew that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the kingdom of God was about to arrive in the most real way it had ever been experienced. So just imagine what life was like for John the Baptist for a little bit. Imagine knowing from a very young age exactly what you were called by God to be. In fact, a lot of people think that that John knew from the age of five what his vocation, what his calling from God was to be all about. I don't know many five-year-olds that know that very thing. In fact, today in our culture, most people don't even really decide what they are going to do until they are in college or they are college age. And even then, a lot of people decide uh, to do something different after they graduate from college. In fact, I'd be interested to know how many of you are actually doing the thing that you majored in when it came to your college years. And all that's because our culture is really friendly to people who want to switch gears and reinvent themselves. But imagine, John, for just a moment. Imagine having a singular calling and a singular purpose for your life. A calling that had been given to him by God and there was no questioning about it whatsoever. John knew exactly what he was called to be. He knew that he was called to be the forerunner. That his job was in many ways to set the table for the coming of God, to set the table for the kingdom of God that was at hand. And so that was his message throughout his entire life, but he also had a method. And his method, as we read before, was the method of baptism. Essentially, he preached this, if God is indeed coming, then all of us should get our acts together. If the kingdom of God is really at hand, then we ought to be ready when the kingdom of God shows up. And so the Gospels tell us that countless people came to John while he was ministering in the wilderness. And it tells us that they were baptized there. They were were baptized to prepare their hearts for the coming Savior. And with that baptism, it was a symbol It was a symbol of a turn, a resolution, we might want to call it, at this time of year, or even a repentance. People turning from living in one way to now deciding to live in a different way because the kingdom of God is at hand. They were restoring a life lived in covenant faithfulness to God. But then comes the climax in many ways of John's life. And we've read about Jesus himself coming out in the wilderness 
to be baptized by John the Baptist. And Mark tells us that as Jesus is is coming out of the waters, Mark says this, And when he came out of the water, immediately he, meaning John the Baptist, saw the heavens being torn open. Just imagine this. The heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, no gospel writers record for us what John the Baptist's reaction was in this moment. But we can only imagine what he must have been feeling in this climax moment of his life. This week, I thought back to uh, May 2nd, 2003. I'm, of course, old enough to remember that pretty vividly. May 2nd, 2003. And I remember our president at the time, uh, George Bush, standing on the, the USS Abraham Lincoln. And on top of the aircraft carrier was this big banner behind him that said, Mission Accomplished. And that was signaling for the American public that uh, the beginning of the end of the U.S. involvement in the war of Iraq uh, had now come and that the mission had been accomplished. Now, historians today kind of chuckle at that moment because uh, we now know that it took us a lot longer uh, to get out of Iraq, but it was an important moment. It was a moment that signaled that a mission in at least the president's mind had been accomplished. Well, I have to think that this was John the Baptist's mission-accomplished moment. Because this was the climax of his life, because he had experienced Jesus in a very real and a very personal way. And because of that, the rest of his life, the entire trajectory of his life had now changed. In many ways, it was time for him to fade into the background or to ride off into the sunset. And that's exactly where our passage this morning picks up, because it tells us about the denouement of John the Baptist's life, all the stuff that happens after the climax of his life. You see, prior to Jesus, John had had a a pretty large following. He was a, a popular figure. He had his own disciples. But now that Jesus was here, his disciples were starting to leave him. Slowly, one by one, they were leaving John the Baptist in order to follow Jesus. John had his faithfuls. He had his disciples that were hanging around. And what we learn from our passage is is they were being a little bit petty. They were understandably petty, but they were still being a, a little bit petty because I think they were feeling threatened. And of course, it would be easy for John the Baptist at this point with his faithful disciples to be a little bit petty to do as well, to kind of hang on to his pride, to hang on to his popularity. He might have been thinking things like, well, hey, didn't I have a pivotal role in all this? Uh, Didn't I, wasn't I an essential cog in making all of this happen? And if that's true, why are all the people leaving my church and going to that guy's church instead of mine? What about all of my significance? And what about all of my popularity? But you don't see that in John at all. Instead, his response is remarkable to his disciples. 
His response starts with an illustration. He says this in verse 29. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In many ways, what John is calling himself, at least in our terms, is the best man at the wedding. And in the ancient Near East, they didn't call them the best man, but they had that concept. They called it the Shoshin. And the Shoshin had some very specific jobs when it came to a wedding. He would actually guard the bride and the bridal chamber until the bridegroom would arrive. And he knew that he might have to fight off uh, some false suitors or, or some false lovers for, for, uh, from this bride who had been betrothed. But he instinctively knew that as soon as the bridegroom arrived, that his job was done. It was finished. And he would find all sorts of joy in the completion of his job. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings before. Uh, Some I've attended, some I have officiated. And never once in any wedding that I've officiated or been to, never once have I had to pull the best man aside and say, hey, you know, this isn't really all about you, right? You're not the person that people are here to see. They instinctively know what their job is and what they are supposed to do. They know their role and they don't have any sort of problem fulfilling that role. And so John knows that he is the best man at this wedding, that his job has been to set the table, and now the bridegroom has now come to marry his bride. And so John comes to this incredibly powerful conclusion with joy, and he says this, which is an incredibly powerful phrase. He says this, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, there's no ego here. There's no arrogance here. There's no holding on tightly to this significant position that he had. He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, this is what a powerful encounter with Jesus Christ did to John. And it's exactly what it does to us as well. Because what we discover is this. That when we encounter Jesus Christ, no longer are we the center of our lives. Christ has now become the center. And we, in many ways, are called to fade into the background so that God's glory can be demonstrated by Christ's activity in our lives. You know, there's a lot of gods in our culture There's a lot of things that we worship day in and day out. We worship things like success. We worship things like uh, achievement, uh, wealth. But every single person contends with one specific idolatry, and that is the idolatry of self, of worshiping ourselves. And our culture does everything possible 
to feed into that false idolatry, to that worship of self. Our culture says things like live to your fulfillment or live for your personal fulfillment. It says things like uh, find your own purpose and passion. It says be the best version of yourself or things like relentlessly pursue your own dreams and don't let anybody else or anything else get in the way of you accomplishing your own dreams. But you see, then Jesus invades your life and all of those other things automatically take a backseat to the presence of Christ in your life because he must increase and we must decrease. Now, when we say that, it sounds so kind of dutiful and self-sacrificial and hard, but in some ways it isn't. Because for John, it was the greatest joy of his life to decrease. And it can be for you and I as well. You see, friends, make no uh, mistake. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means that his will, his glory, his fame become the central focus of our lives. In fact, our entire existence is to not lift ourselves up, but instead to lift him up. And when that becomes true, it means that our will, our desires, and our purpose, they fade into the background, and sometimes they ride off into the sunset. You see, what what, what is so true is this. The gospel declares that Jesus Christ brings forgiveness of sins and a new life. It's one of the most incredible gifts that the gospel gives us. It tells us that through his sacrifice, we are made whole. And it also tells us that in the process, we are given a wholly new center for our lives. But here's the truth. I think a lot of Christians really struggle with joy. And I think this is why. I think most Christians struggle with joy because they want all of the forgiveness and the wholeness and the peace of the gospel, good things, but at the same time, they don't want to have to rend or release control of their lives. And this is why Jesus said this. This is why Jesus said you can't have both. You cannot serve two masters. And so what the gospel tells us is this. It tells us that we find joy, just as John did, that we find joy as we move to the back seat, as our will, as our desires, as our plans move to the secondary part of our lives. It tells us that we can find joy just as John did in sacrificing our dreams and our purposes in our plans. The gospel tells us that that we find joy in sacrificing our own pride for the sake of the kingdom of God. So friends, my prayer for you and for me is this, that we all would find joy as we decrease and as his glory and power increases. Let's pray.